Acts chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. We're just going to read the first eight verses, sort of the introduction to this story. Acts chapter 10, 10 excuse me, verses 1 to 8. Follow along with me as I read it aloud. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Let's pray. Father, this is your word to us today. And um, Lord, I, I pray you'll give us understanding that we need from you at this time. Uh, be here by your Spirit. Help us to uh, think clearly about this. Help us to uh, see how this applies to our own lives. And God, give us uh, an obedient heart, a heart that is soft and tender to you and to your Word, that we may be transformed by it, that we may see the glory of Christ in the Word today. For our joy and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, let me start out with the big idea. The big idea this morning is on the screen. And it is this. It's on the screen. I don't know if anyone's back there. It is on the screen. It will be on the screen. <laughs> Jesus transforms anyone who seeks Him into someone who is devoted to Him. Jesus transforms anyone who seeks Him into someone who is devoted to Him. Now, the anyone here comes from this man named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile. Cornelius is not a, a, a part of the nation of Israel. He is not a Jew. He's not considered one of God's people. He's a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He's in Caesarea. He's doing a job. He's, he represents Rome. But yet he's a man who clearly is seeking God. Luke's description of, of this man Cornelius is one of commendation. He's saying, look at this centurion. Look at even a centurion, a man who represents Rome, a man who's in a secular vocation, a man who is all about, uh, all about the, the power of Rome, the empire, and all that it represents. Look at this man's character. Look how he represents somebody who's seeking after God. And then in the course of the story, as we, we just heard, God sends an angel to him 
to speak to him, to, to reveal something to him, to bring him closer to him. And we're going to see this in the coming weeks when we look more closely at the story. How God brings him to faith, not just as a God-fearer, a man who believed in God, the God of Israel, the God that the Jews believed in, but a man who came to faith in Jesus himself. Jesus transforms anyone who seeks him into someone who is devoted to him. And if we can, if we can just take a look at Cornelius here and how he's described and what he goes through just in these first few verses, I think we'll see three important things that about how about how Jesus transforms or what he what Jesus transforms us to be in terms of our devotion to him. It begins with this. The first idea I wanted to, to point out to you is Jesus transforms us to be devoted to him through worship. Jesus transforms us to be devoted to him through worship. The very first description of Cornelius in verse 2, after we learn that he's a centurion, after we see very clearly he's got a Greek name as opposed to a, a Jewish name of that time, we see that he lives in a, the town of Caesarea, which is named after Caesar. It's a port city. It's essentially the the Roman capital of that whole province of Palestine. That's where that we, we think of Jerusalem as that's the center of everything. Well, that certainly was the center of all of the activity of Jesus and the activity of the priests and the activity of the Jewish people, especially in uh, the Gospels and in the first part of Acts. But re in reality, Caesarea represented the, the capital city. I guess it would be maybe the difference between Seattle and Olympia. You know, Olympia is a, it is what it is. Um, Seattle's kind of the, the cultural center of the whole area, right? The whole Northwest. But Olympia still is, is it's still the capital of the state of Washington. It, very important things happen. That's where the governor is. That's where the legislature is. That's where all of the, the, the stuff is being decided. Um, that's where the representatives um, uh, reside. And that's kind of what Caesarea was like. And here's Cornelius, a centurion, meaning that he was in charge of a, of a century of soldiers, a hundred soldiers, and that he was part of this Italian cohort, which would have been about, oh, uh, how many was that? About 600 or so soldiers in a, in a cohort, um, which would then make up a legion later on, that type of thing. It, 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 he's, he's, he's like a company commander in the U.S. Army. He's got, he's got that group of soldiers. But he's not a young guy. Uh, a, man of, a man of Cornelius's uh, responsibility as a centurion would have been a veteran. A veteran soldier. A man who had been serving for a long time. Probably an older guy. Um, maybe he's in his 40s. Maybe he's in his 50s. Uh, whatever an older man was at that time, that's where he's at. But look at how he is described. In verse 2, Luke says he's a devout man. He feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people. And he prayed continually to God. 
Think about this man who, who has such a position, a centurion, Roman, not just, not, just, not just any centurion, but he actually belongs to the Italian cohort. I mean, he's from Rome. He's from that, that region. And all of his soldiers that work under him are from that region. But Luke points out to us, he is a devout man. He fears God with all his household. The, the term uh, devout man sometimes um, translates in other, uh, in other places, a godly man. There's another verse in 2 Peter where this same word is used and he's described as a, and that, in, in that passage, the translation is, he's a godly man. He, he's a man who, whose character and whose, whose religious life, his life of worship, represented godly values and godly focus and godly attention. That's the kind of man this was. And to... to, to to press the matter home, it says he feared God. Remember, remember way back in, in uh, the, the early parts of Acts, the description of the people when some, some, some strange or, or sudden or even a terrifying event took place. The hand of God was at work and something happened and what, what was Luke's description? That great fear came upon all the people. Fabas megas, Right? Great fear. Same words used here. Uh, Cornelius feared God. He saw God as great. He saw God as powerful. He saw God as awesome. Someone to be respected. Someone to be feared in reverence. And that's the kind of man that Cornelius is. I wonder if we looked at our lives, we thought, here is a God-fearing man. Here's a man who, at this point, a little spoiler alert, doesn't know Jesus, but is a very religious person, fearing God, devoted to God, devout, praying continually, giving generously, charitable gifts to people generously. If a man like this could worship God as he does, what should, that, what should that say to us who, who are saved by grace? Uh, we who do know Jesus. What, how, what, should that, what does that tell us about our devotion and what it should be like in terms of worship? He uh, feared God, it says, with all his household. I, uh, week after week, I love seeing all of our children here. And I, it's, it's a beautiful thing because as, as mommies and daddies bring their children to worship week after week, year after year, as they're growing up, they learn the faith of their parents. They learn to value worship. They learn to value the church. It's a beautiful thing when a man can say, my household fears God. My household follows after God. Like John said in his letters, in his small letters, John, or 2 John, 3 John, he says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking 
in the truth. It's pretty awesome. Here's the, here is a man who was so devoted to the God that had revealed that he had been that, that had been revealed to him through uh, it must have been the Old Testament scripture. He must have connected with a, uh, the synagogue there in Caesarea, in that primarily Gentile place. He had somehow come to understand that this was a God worth worshiping. And I'm going to bring my family with me and my household and my servants and those, I'm going to encourage them all to, to walk in this faith and in this sphere. And that plays out pretty amazingly later on in the story. What is our devotion to Him through worship? Are we devoted in that way? Jesus transforms us to be devoted to Him through worship, but He also transforms us to be devoted to Him through compassion. Through compassion. It's easy to to see giving of alms and think... Well, that was just kind of something that people of means did. It was just sort of their their thing. They had money, you know, to spare. So they would walk into the temple. They'd walk up the gates and they there'd be a poor beggar and they'd toss him a coin, you know. But every time that Luke talks about somebody giving alms, somebody who's giving generously, charitable giving, uh, like... Like Tabitha last week, who was known for her good works and her acts of charity. Actually, the same, same words are used here. Giving alms generously to the people. Here is a man who took his faith in God, his devotion to God, seriously. He, 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 he must have rationed this out. I can I can imagine I can imagine Cornelius coming to terms one day with the fact that he and he he became aware of and he encountered the Jewish God, the one true God, and went if if this God exists and he made everything and all people are created in his image, then what what does that mean for me, a person of means? When there are people suffering and hurting and without all around me. And so, he gives generously. And, it, and it's, it's not that he did it one time. That was a pattern of his. He was constantly giving. His heart was moved with compassion for people who were in need. So he gave alms generously to the people. And the next few verses show us that, that that act of charity, that compassion of His, and the worship that He practiced in His prayers continually didn't go unnoticed by God. Because we see in verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, well, about three in the afternoon, a typical time for Jews to be praying. There was a there was at three about three o'clock in the afternoon. There was a prayer service going on in the temple 
in Jerusalem. Now here's Cornelius, who's not in Jerusalem, who's living in Caesarea, but who's aware enough of what of, of the practice of the people who worship the one true God to, that he said he made it a practice in his own life to pray continuously at the ninth hour of every day. So there he is praying, and just like we saw in Saul, just like we saw in Ananias, um, just like we have seen throughout the story so far, God comes to him, an angel, sends an angel to him to speak to him. You see, it says he, he saw in a vision an angel of God saying Cornelius. Here's one of God's messengers. Here's God saying, Cornelius, I'm, I'm here to speak to you. And so he stares at them in terror. Again, great fear. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen an angel. Let me know how that goes. Um, you might respond similarly uh, with terror. And he says, what is it, Lord? He uses that, that term of respect. And, and the angel says to him, your prayers and your, alm, your alms, that is your, your charitable giving, have ascended as a memorial before God. The, the compassion that, that Cornelius had as, as one devoted to God became a memorial offering to God Himself. Kind of reminds me of what the Apostle Paul later wrote when he wrote in, in Romans chapter 12 that let your living or let your lives be or offer yourselves in your own bodies as a, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That, that, the, that how you worship and how you show compassion towards others, let that be an offering that God would see from heaven. We're well, going to use those anthropomorphic terms. He sees our, our, our offering. He sees our lives. He sees our worship. He sees our compassion. And God is affirming that in Cornelius, saying, Cornelius, what you've done, your prayers, your alms, they've been a good thing. They've been accepted by God. God sees you. It hasn't been in vain. Now, here's what I want you to do. And then, he, and then the angel gives him a message. We talk about... Um, <laughs> we've talked about many times about um, needs, seeing needs in our community, meeting needs in, in, our, in our families, meeting needs in the church... Um, just last week we talked, are we looking for people in need? Are we, are we looking for help when we're in need? This, this idea of compassion and the meeting of needs is, is on just about every page of the New Testament as we see God's people doing what they have been resourced to do. But I think it's important, I think, to just pause a moment and reflect on the fact that what uh, Cornelius was doing was recognized by God. Do you ever feel that the, th the things that you do on a regular basis, maybe, maybe they're little things, or maybe they're big things, go unnoticed by most people? And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's a good thing that your gifts 
and your offerings go unnoticed. We don't want to call attention to yourself. You don't want your left hand to know what your right hand is doing and vice versa. And that's okay. But it can be really discouraging over time if nobody else sees, nobody else acknowledges, nobody else gives encouragement, and you feel like God isn't either. <laughs> and you feel like maybe God hasn't seen me. Is God silent in my life? I'm encouraged by the story of Cornelius that at least in his life, God showed him that he's ever watching. He showed him what we read in the Old Testament. One of the Proverbs that the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro. That's kind of the older translation. Keeping watch over the evil and the good. God, it, God sees. God knows. We saw that in the psalm, didn't we? Psalm 141. That, that God sees us. He is aware of what we are doing. Good and bad. And, and the things that we do, even, even though we may not get any indication that they've been noticed, God knows. And Jesus Himself promised that there will come a time when... When the, the record of our lives will be played <laughs> and what we have done, both good and bad. And praise the Lord that God will see there our prayers, our alms, our worship, our compassion have not been in vain. One other thing to, to, to throw out about Cornelius here. Worship and compassion... If I were to rephrase that, it might sound like love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your might. Maybe Deuteronomy 6, um, chapter, or 6 verse 5. And then maybe it would go on from there and it would be love your neighbor as yourself, which is later in Deuteronomy chapter 9, I think. But check me on that. Jesus pointed those out. What's the greatest commandment? To love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. What's, and, and then the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's a man, Cornelius, who understood that. Understood that was the way to live my life. That was what my life is all about. Even without understanding who Jesus was. And I wonder why... In my own life, I sometimes totally miss this. And I think I'm doing that. I think I'm worshiping. I think I'm devoted to Him. I think I'm showing compassion on people every once in a while. And I want to be recognized for those times, you know. But the, the, the general thrust of my life is almost always centered on something else. And Cornelius humbles me a little bit. This devout man who feared God. Look what he does next. Jesus transforms us to be devoted to him through worship, through compassion, and finally through obedience. 
So verse 5, the angels... The angel's not there just to commend him. Not just, keep up the good work. You're doing good. Keep praying. Keep alm, keep, keep giving alms. Those are good. Those are good things. Keep, in, keep doing those things. But he actually gives some instruction. Send, to, send men to Joppa to bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Don't mix those guys up. There's, I want you to get Simon Peter, not Simon Tanner. And uh, tell him to come to you. The angel uh, says in verse 7, When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. Well, now there's a lot of interesting things going on right there. But I want to ask the question, why, why, why wouldn't the angel just say, Hey, Cornelius, check it out. You, here's, here's, the, here's the full gospel. Here's, here's who you really need to be worshiping. Jesus. Why didn't Jesus show up in a vision? I mean, he showed up to Saul. Why didn't Jesus just show up? Cornelius. Hey, buddy. And have Cornelius say, Who are you, Lord? And instead of, What is it, Lord? Who are you, Lord? And he could say, I'm Jesus. The one you've been seeking. I... It's me. You've been, you've been looking for all these years. You've, you're a devout man. You're devoted to God. You're devoted to Yahweh. You've been, you've been praying to, to the Heavenly Father all of these years. You've been giving generously. You've got the worship and the compassion thing worked out. Why didn't Jesus just show? Why didn't the angel give him that message? Hey, it's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's, he gives him a mission. Tells him to go find and find this other knucklehead. You know what the story of Acts is about, right? It's about witnesses. Acts one eight. You shall be, you will be my witnesses, Jesus told his disciples. And he didn't make that an option. He said, you will be my witnesses. Future tense, indicative, meaning it's going to happen. It's a reality. You're going to be my witnesses. And I've been qualifying that, that term throughout this message as faithful witnesses. <laughs> because we're either going to be faithful witnesses or unfaithful witnesses. But witnesses nonetheless. And that's how Jesus is working. Jesus is using His faithful witnesses to tell others about Him. And so, Jesus doesn't want to steal our joy. He doesn't want to steal Simon Peter's joy. Because Simon Peter is going to have the opportunity, spoiler alert, to tell uh, Cornelius and his household the gospel. And so, the angel gives the message of, go get this man, a man very similar to you, a man of flesh and blood, a man who's saved by the grace of Jesus to, to hear the message of Jesus. And I think that's an important thing for us to reflect on. When we think about, well, why doesn't God just save the people? Well, why does He, you know, why doesn't He just, you know, change somebody's heart and mind and just kind of make them go, alright, forget it, no more doubts, I, I believe everything now. Why does He... Why doesn't he just do that? 
We, we believe He changes hearts and only Jesus can change a heart and only the Holy Spirit can do that work. So why is He using me and you? Peter had some things to learn too. And I think we do too. As we, tell the, as we share the gospel with people, we learn something. We experience something. We experience something about God that we would be, we would be far poorer for not, for not experiencing. I don't know, every time I've had a chance to tell somebody about Jesus, have a, conver- a spiritual conversation with somebody, it does something in me. I pray for people's hearts. They don't always respond positively. Sometimes they just smile and nod. Sometimes they just walk away with more questions. Um, but something, something's going on in my heart to raise my level of joy in the gospel and my level of joy in God. Well, how, does, how is that obedience? When the angels spoke to him departed, he called his servants and a devout soldier. Another, one of his soldiers, maybe one of his privates, who came to his house uh, every Wednesday night for a Bible study there in Caesarea. I, I don't know. He, he said, I, I trust you. Go with my servants and make sure that they're safe and make sure that, that you, you got the message right. He says he related everything to them, sent them off, sent them down the road to Joppa, down the coastline, to visit Simon Peter. He obeyed. Think there were questions in his mind? <laughs> Do you think he probably thought, well, I'm not sure I understand fully what you... Now, what is it you want him to do or say? Uh, what's he going to tell me when he comes? How is this all going to work out? Do you think Cornelius had some questions? He probably did. But yet, he heard and he obeyed. He heard God speak through this angel, a message that he needed to hear, and he obeyed it. Reminds me of um, something that Mark Twain said. It ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand. (laughs) Deuteronomy chapter 10 says, What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind, and to keep the commandments and statutes that I am giving you today for your good. What does God require of us? Yes, to fear Him, love Him, serve Him, to obey Him. And then Jesus didn't leave it there. He said, I'm not coming to, I'm not here to abolish the law, but I'm here to fulfill it. So what did John, what did he say in John 14, verse 15? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What Jesus is saying is, will you obey me? I'm not asking you to understand it all. I'm asking if you'll obey me. You don't have to have it all figured out. Will you obey what I tell you to do? Will you obey the simple directive and see 
what I will do in your life because of that. Could have turned out a lot differently. We never would have heard about Cornelius if Cornelius would have said, well, um, let me think about that for a while. Let me pray on that. Well, let me seek some counsel. Let me get some advice. Or, gosh, was that was some kind of weird dream. Did I eat something funky during lunch today? I mean, maybe I ate some bad fish. He didn't make excuses. He didn't, he didn't try to reason it out. He obeyed. Fee and Stewart wrote this great little book. If you haven't read it, I would, I would get yourself a copy of it and I'd read it. It's very easy to read. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. It's good. Trust me. Read it. They say this at the beginning. It said, We are convinced that the single most serious problem people have with the Bible is not with a lack of understanding, but with the fact that they understand most things too well. The problem is not understanding it, but obeying it. Putting it into practice. I don't know about you, but that kind of hits me where I live. And if I were Cornelius, I would have made a dozen excuses for why I shouldn't do some crazy thing like send my serpent, serpents, servants down the coast with one of my faithful, devout soldiers on a mission that uh, who knows what might turn up. They might come back and go, Cornelius, I think you're off your rocker because... I didn't find anybody there. There's nobody there by the name of Simon who is called Peter. Um, I would have made a whole bunch of excuses uh, by that time. But will we be like Cornelius? I wonder. I mean, do we have that kind of devotion to our God? Are we devoted to Him through our obedience? Not just our showing up for a worship gathering. Not just in our systematic giving. Or our, you know, doing charitable works or charitable giving to other organizations. But in our obedience. I am um, thinking about this obedience thing. Um, kind of as struck me because I thought about how all of these things that we see in Cornelius we also see in Jesus. When you think about Jesus and worship, was he worshiping himself? How does that work? <laughs> Jesus was devoted to prayer see that all through the Gospels. You see Jesus getting away by himself to pray. And the Gospel writers, they point that out. They're, 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 they're always trying to find Jesus. Where is Jesus? There's stuff, there's work to be done. And Jesus is having a prayer meeting. You know? There's things to be, there's food to be distributed because people are hungry. There are people with health concerns. There's a massive health care crisis in the first century. Unlike, uh, not unlike today. All of these important things needed to be done. Jesus is praying. They're looking for you. 
Jesus says, well, let's go somewhere else then. You know, I mean, Jesus was devoted to the Heavenly Father. His life was a life of worship. He said in uh, John 17, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I glorified you. That's a, that's a, that's a word of worship. Jesus' whole life was lived for worship. And at the end of his life, when he laid it down for our sake, and he substituted himself on the cross, he did that as an act of worship for us. Jesus showed compassion. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, his whole life was one of compassion. He looked on people and he said, they have needs. He said, they're hungry. You give them something to eat. He would challenge his disciples to have the same kind of compassion. In Matthew chapter 9, it says, he looked on the people. He said, I'm going to get this right for you. Chapter 9, verse 36 he looked at the crowds and it says he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so what did he do? He said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Not, nothing has changed since that day. The harvest is still plentiful. There's still work to be done. There are still people out there. There, there, are, there is low-hanging fruit, folks. If we, will, if, we will, if we will go to them and offer them Jesus. If we will have that kind of compassion, the kind of compassion that broke Jesus' heart, and His compassion extended once again to the cross as He, li- as he dies there, for you and for me. It was His love that drove Him there. Of course, Jesus was obedient. Jesus obeyed what the Father in heaven told Him to do. And He said it again in John 14, verse 31. I do as the Father has commanded me. Jesus wasn't a lone ranger. He wasn't setting his own agenda. Jesus sent him on a mission. Jesus gave him something to do, and he obeyed it, and he did it. He was obedient to the point of death on the cross for our sake. That is the Jesus who was devoted to his heavenly Father in worship and compassion and in his obedience. That is the Jesus that transforms anyone, even a very religious man like Cornelius, who could have spent the rest of his life being religious. Could have spent the rest of his life being devout, being a God-fearer, believing that God was out there and that I should be praying to Him and that I should be giving money and charity. I should be doing philanthropic ventures because that great God may see me and may, may be pleased with me. He could have lived the rest of his life like that, not knowing Jesus. But Jesus transforms anyone who seeks Him. 
Certainly Cornelius falls into that category. He's looking for something. And he transformed him into someone who was devoted to him. True fear of God, one commentator said, true fear of God is to know and to worship Jesus, God's Son. To, to see Jesus as Lord. To see Christ as, as the one that our hearts are seeking after. We'll see his transformation. We'll see it. It's not over. We're not done with this story of Cornelius. But for now, think about it. Cornelius, for all intents and purposes, a, an unbeliever, maybe he's, maybe he's looking toward, towards the promise, but he hasn't met Jesus yet. Practicing that kind of devotion in worship, in his compassion, and in his obedience, how much more should we who've received the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ have learned to, to, or have been confronted by a God who is both just and loving, how much more should we then devote ourselves to Him for His sake? Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for his obedience, his life of worship, the fact that in his life and in his death he gave glory to you. The fact that he not only modeled compassion, but he was compassionate towards us. He poured out his life for us. His body broken. His blood poured out. That we might be saved. That we might know him. Lord, I pray that that will be our motivation. That we won't, that we won't settle for cheap grace. But we will receive with open open hands, open arms, an open heart, an open life, the costly grace of your son Jesus costs you everything. And that, that will inspire us and motivate us to give you everything that we have for your sake. Let us not cease worshiping and gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. Let us do so all the more. Let us be devoted to good works and to generous giving. Let us love our neighbors as ourselves as we love you with our hearts, minds, soul, strength. Let us obey every word that you give us that we may experience, God, the grace of obedience the grace of receiving more from you than we could ever ask or imagine. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus today. Amen.